0: Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture teaches that when we sin, it breaks fellowship with God. That rapport that we have, that uh, ongoing spiritual relationship that we have with God is, is breached and hindered, and our ongoing growth is stopped, and so we have to recover. We recover by simply confessing our sins, which means to admit or to acknowledge to God uh, what our sins are, and we're instantly forgiven and cleansed so that we can b- recover that uh, filling ministry, the sanctifying ministry of the Holy Spirit. We can continue our walk with the Holy Spirit and continue to develop our relationship with God. So we'll start with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to confess sins, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so very, very grateful that we can come together to, to study your word, that we can take time in a free country. And for now, we still have freedom, although these freedoms are eroded more and more every year as this nation shifts away from the establishment principles that you built into creation. Uh, what we often refer to as the divine institutions. And Father, even today, as we've learned that the, uh, Supreme Court has declared the Defense of Marriage Act unconstitutional, we recognize that, that we continue to slide into a full bore, uh, paganism. And the only solution, the only real help for this nation is believers who, uh, are focused on your word and who make it a priority. Those who are completely sold out to biblical truth and want to not only make it a part of their own soul, but they want to impact those around them uh, through the proclamation of the gospel and also being a a silent witness to their life as well as a witness with their lips to the uh, value of your word and to the truth in, of your word in demonstrating every day that it is absolute truth. And, Father, as we study 1 Thessalonians, this is one of the things that that Paul praises them for, is that their reputation, even though they had not been believers but for a short time, and even though they lived at a time when communication wasn't as rapid as it was today, they had established a reputation uh, in terms of understanding the gospel and their desire to grow spiritually that spread out, uh, through the Roman Empire and encouraged and strengthened others uh, through their testimony. And Father, we pray that that is true for us. And Father, we pray that as we continue our study in First Thessalonians, that we might come to a greater understanding of key spiritual principles that we need to implement and develop in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name, Amen. We're in First Thessalonians. This is the uh, fourth lesson where we're focusing on uh, the opening uh, address of the Apostle Paul and his opening prayer. There's a lot that we can learn about prayer, and one of the ways in which we're going to develop this uh, in the next lesson is to look at what we learn from prayer from the Apostle Paul's prayers because so often we run into uh, situations where we get into sort of ruts in our own prayer life, we get into ruts in terms of how we pray, and it's important to look at biblical prayers as models and patterns, uh, for, for prayer. And this is part of what we see at the very opening of, of this epistle. Now, just in terms of a little background, it's always important to understand that these are real people who lived at a real time. They faced the same kinds of, uh, difficulties and pressures and adversities, hopes and disappointments that you and I face. They're, they're flesh and blood people with all of the strengths and weaknesses of every other human being. Now, they lived in a culture that uh, admittedly moved a good bit slower than ours does, and uh, they didn't have as much uh, pressure, there weren't as many options, there wasn't as much stress, Uh, As we face today, stress is a major factor in our culture. I've read uh, some years ago that the average 21st century American makes more decisions in uh, a couple of weeks than the average 10th century middle age um, uh, European made in his entire life. And so we we make a huge number of decisions. Some people are in jobs and careers where they make uh, many more decisions than other people do. And dis- may- having to make constantly make significant critical decisions puts pressure on us. And yet the promise from God is that we can have a relaxed mental attitude and go through life even in the midst of tremendous pressure uh, simply by trusting in his word. He's provided everything for us. And I think that uh, living in the world in which we live today with all of the uh, intensity of life, that it's important for us that if we are going to survive into uh, our golden years, our senior years, with a solid, relaxed mental attitude and good health, that we master these foundational spiritual skills at a young age and that takes, that takes a, a, a dedication and a commitment to practice these skills from the very beginning. It's not something that just happens. It's not something that just by coming to Bible class, just by taking notes, just by hearing things that we get it. It it, it calls upon us even more to implement these principles and these skills on a a regular basis, which is uh, why I'm going back over these and reviewing these in this lesson. So this is in Thessalonica. We see the uh, overall uh, area here on this particular map. The area I have circled here is the area in uh, uh, Macedonia, which is the Greek pronunciation for Macedonia. Macedonia, and the purple line here traces the route of the Apostle Paul as he left from the sit- reviewing the cities, revisiting the cities that he had gone to in the first uh, first. Um, uh, missionary journey now headed up. The Holy Spirit prevented him from going into Asia or northern Galatia or Bithynia, leading them to uh, Troas where Paul received a vision to take the gospel over into Europe, into Macedonia. So they took a ship across, stopping at Samothrace, landing at Neapolis and going to uh, Philippi first and then leaving Philippi, um, Philippi, And going to Thessaloniki, here's another map where we see Thessalonica, indicated by this red star here. We see it's in a major port area right on the east-west highway trade route of the Roman Road, the Via Ignatia. We started off last time with the introduction the typical salutation of the ancient world where you place your your author, the writer at the beginning, and it's indicated as Paul, and he includes his traveling companions uh, Silas and Timothy uh, in the introduction, even though this is written with him. These are his uh, trainees as well, the men that he is mentoring for uh, pastoral ministry. And so he is writing this because Paul, Uh, had left Thessalonica, had gone on to uh, Berea and to Athens, and he sent uh, Silas and Timothy back uh, to Thessalonica to check on things. And so they had brought with them now, Paul is in Corinth, and they brought with him various questions and concerns from the group in Thessalonica. And so he addresses that to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the next few verses, we see his emphasis in prayer. We'll come back and talk about prayer in the next class, but right now I want to focus on his opening in terms of uh, the way he expresses his, his gratitude. Gratitude is so fundamental to the Christian life for a couple of reasons, and we all need to work at being more grateful And I find that if we focus on the things that we're thankful for as opposed to the things that aren't quite working out, that it has a tremendous uh, impact on our mental attitude. We need to focus on the goodness of God's grace in our lives and the abundance that he has given us. And when we review the life of the Apostle Paul, uh, he is going through extremely negative uh, circumstances. He is going through a lot of rejection, hostility, opposition. We don't get a lot of the details here, but in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about uh, in detail many of the ways in which he's arrested, he's beaten with rods, he's whipped, uh, he's thrown in jail, and most of these incidences are not not identified in the book of Acts and so we can only surmise as to when they took place but we do know that there was opposition uh, in in uh, uh, Philippi there's opposition in Thessalonica as well and a lot of this is uh, is um, uh, is energized by opposition from Paul's own people. So, it, it, you've got to put yourself in a position where you're going to your own ethnic group, your own people, people who, uh, who under other circumstances would have been uh, ready to get, do anything to help you and yet because you're now taking a certain position, they have rejected you. So he's going through a lot of rejection that has, uh, re- resulted in hostility, anger, f- uh, physical beatings in Philippi and also being thrown in jail. So, He's not talking out of some abstract theology, but he's focusing on how thankful he is for those who have responded to the gospel. And he starts off saying, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, uh, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election or your choice by God. So I wanted to take time. We started on this last time, his focus on giving thanks uh, from the verb eukaristeo, eucharist, which is a present tense verb indicating this is a continuous uh, type of activity now there are different ways in which we can understand the present tense uh, nothing tells us this other than the understanding of the language and everyday usage of language there's nothing that objective that indicates the specificity of how uh, a tense is used but you have a um, you have, and grammarians talk about uh, the tense that it has a long duration. This is something I do all the time, like we might say, I breathe every day, uh, every second, every minute, every hour of every day. It's a continuous action that continues to go on. So we can speak of that as as a present tense of durative action. And then you have you have narrower and narrower usage of the. Uh, of the present tense for example i could say i am uh teaching now i'm not that's a uh, that is a more narrow use of the present tense we're just talking about something i'm doing for the current time maybe no longer than an hour uh it could be some other event that lasts a very very short time uh, it also can refer to what's called a habitual or customary uh, type of use, which means that the present tense isn't describing something that happens uh, continuously without interruption, but something that is a regular habitual pattern. And that's what Paul is is talking about here when he says we give thanks to God. This is his habitual uh, pattern in life is to continuously be giving thanks He's not talking about something that covers every second of every minute, but something that is uh, intermittently content- present in a continuous manner to characterize his life. So he's a life that you look at him and say he is a thankful person and he's thankful to God. And this opens the door to understanding the whole concept of gratitude. Gratitude. And gratitude is related to grace. So in our first point, uh, we covered last time, I believe, in terms of the etymology and definition, gratitude derives from the Latin word gratis related to both grace, uh, favor, kindness, and the response to kindness. All of those ideas are covered in that word gratis. Uh, gratitude is also expressed as appreciation, acknowledgement, uh, appreciativeness, gratefulness, recognition, thankfulness for some action. Failure to be grateful is an act of arrogance. I know that when we d- aren't grateful for something, it's usually because we're pretty self-absorbed. Things aren't going the way we wanted them to go. Uh, we're not getting what we want. And so uh, failure to be grateful is a result of arrogance. It's a result of self-absorption and it's very easy to slip into an attitude of entitlement. This is typical in our culture as Americans, and I think we've exported this idea to many other countries, but as Americans who have been extremely blessed with so many material things that we have produced a a couple of generations now of narcissists. Narcissists are people who are so focused on what they have, their own personal pleasure, what they want, their own personal desires. And that this, this fosters a, the fertile soil in our thinking of entitlement. We, we think that we deserve certain things. I, I witnessed this in myself and in many others in my generation. When we left the uh, wonderful homes that we were brought up in and we had a certain level of prosperity in this country far beyond what we see today. Back in the 50s and 60s, the prosperity in this nation was unbelievable. The the tax structure was much lower than it is today. In many cases, uh, it was only necessary for uh, the husband, the father, to work outside the home, and the families experienced a, a wonderful level of prosperity. And then when the kids went off to, to college and they graduated from college, they expected to immediately go into a home, uh, have this drive the same quality of cars that they that their parents drove. Uh and later on by the eighties you had high school kids expecting to be able to drive the same quality of cars that their parents drove. And it fostered this mentality of entitlement. And gratitude cannot uh develop in an entitlement mentality because you, you're you're not grateful for what you have, you think you deserve it. And you think you deserve uh everything. Uh, This is a a reflection of a spiritual attitude that has rejected God, and this can be true of believers or unbelievers. Romans 121 tells us about unbelievers, that even though they knew uh, God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. This lack of gratitude is foundational to a pagan mentality. It's a failure to recognize the role that God plays in bestowing upon us Everything good that we have, uh, have in life. Gratitude, the third point. Gratitude is therefore directly related to grace orientation. Now, grace orientation is a tag phrase that we use in order to summarize one of the most significant doctrines in Scripture, and that is an understanding that all that we have and all that we are really is just given to us from God. We think of it primarily in terms of the gospel, the good news of salvation. That that what we have in terms of salvation is a free gift from God, and so we just accept that. And we don't have to do anything to earn or deserve it. It isn't free because it costs something. It costs the death of Christ on the cross, and it costs the Father sending the second person of the Trinity to become a human being and eventually to go to the cross where there would be a legal separation between Father and Son as God the Father poured out or imputed to the Son the the sins of the world. Uh, So grace is something we think of theologically, and uh, grace is also a word that because of its uh, overuse has become too familiar to many people, and we, we tend to lose sight of the significance of grace. And uh, you hear this in all kinds of Christian circles, whether they come out of a uh, works-based gospel or works-based sanctification, or whether they come out of a more free grace sanctification. Everybody talks about grace. And they may redefine it. I, I've heard of some people talk about earning grace. But that violates the basic meaning of grace. Grace means to be gi- given something freely with no strings attached. And so that there are no conditions placed upon the, the, the giving of the gift. So understanding grace is essential to developing, uh, uh, gratitude. So in the way I've talked about grace in the past, is part of what what I've called the stress busters. Now, this is a review for some people. I'm going to say some things. I haven't taught on this in quite a while, and I'm going to go back and tie some things together and try to just review for us uh, this whole concept of the stress busters and spiritual skills. What I mean by stress busters is that, Stress is something that comes into our lives not as a result of, of something internal, but as a result of external pressures. If you go to the doctor and you're taking a, your uh, annual physical, in many cases a doctor may put you on a treadmill and give you a stress test on a treadmill. And what they're doing is they're going to have you get on the treadmill. They're going to sh- uh, put different... Uh, uh, attachments on you to read your, your, your pulse, your heart rate, uh, other things of that nature so that they can see how your heart responds to increased activity and then they're going to, you have to start off walking and then the treadmill speeds up and you have to go from walking to walking very fast to jogging to running and all through this there's going to be a printout measuring the response internally of your heart to the external pressure of physical activity. So in the way I talk about stress here, I'm not talking about it in terms of what is produced internally, but it's that external pressure. We also uh, talk in certain uh, industries and um, metallurgy, steel production, things like that, of putting st- steel through stress tests where external pressure is placed upon the steel in order to uh, test or verify if there are any invisible uh, weaknesses or fractures within the steel that can cause a weakness or a collapse. So so we see stress as something that is used in in many contexts to refer to this external pressure. And we live in a world today where there's a tremendous amount of external pressure upon us, our our schedules, traffic, uh, having to deal with uh, people who are often uh, have no people skills whatsoever. They're not Christians. They they have no compassion. They may have a lack of education. They may have lack of competence, and and we have to work with people like this every single day. And that puts a level of pressure upon us. The demands that get placed upon people in the work environment today are much greater than they were. Uh, 30 or 40 years ago, and those were even far greater than they were in an agricultural, uh, society centuries before that. So external pressure consistently increases upon us, and it's easy for us to see how that generates a lot of mental attitude sins. Anxiety, worry, concern. Sometimes we don't, we're not even conscientiously aware of that, but these things are percolating inside of our minds and at the same time uh, all of a sudden somebody says something to us and we're irritable we snap at them we're angry we're uh, resentful short-tempered things like that simply because so much is going on but but we have to train ourselves spiritually to refocus and think in terms of god 's plan and god 's provision, and that takes a mental attitude focus and the development of self control which is a fruit of the spirit, an uh, uh, attitude of self control and it takes place over time and yet the only person who can make that happen is is us. we have to make take the time to be disciplined to focus on these things and think this through. And there are a lot of different tools that we can use to do that. Some people journal. Some people may just keep lists on their computers. Other people may make this a matter of daily prayer. Uh, There there are a lot of different ways uh, that we can do this, but we need to focus on this and not just sort of – put our our spiritual mind in, in a neutral gear, and just drift through events, but actively engage uh, with what's happening around us so that we can think about how to respond to cir- circumstances and situations from a biblical framework. So this also ratchets up the pressure, as a, in, a, in a sense, uh, on the intensity for every believer – that 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 you just really can't get away with being the kind of christian that just shows up at church or listens to the word of god uh once a week anymore. Uh just as uh, everything else in life has become more intense and more demanding uh to handle that intensity and those demands, we have to ratchet up our personal commitment to study and apply the word of god. And you just can't get by with, with coasting anymore spiritually. And when we look at what's happening in our culture, we really can't. We have to be actively engaged in our culture in ways we haven't been required to for years. How many of us have, have just coasted in terms of, of, of the, the responsibilities of, of citizenship over the many, many years in which we have, we've been alive. I would say that, that very few of us have ever attended a, um, a precinct meeting. After the, uh, a, after the election, after you have your primaries, usually in Texas that's been in March, things changed some the last election, but usually after the primaries, then you have a meeting of the party within the precinct and people go to that. I was, I was encouraged several years ago when I talked about this to find out that, uh, at least a, a, a half a dozen or more people in the congregation and those who l- were listening to me in the state got involved in going to their precinct meetings. It was on a Tuesday night when we typically have elections. We had Bible class, but people went. And several people were chosen to be delegates to the next two or three levels uh, up. And this is just part of being involved in your culture. When we see what's happening around us, and especially in light of the pressure that's coming from from these various uh, political groups, uh, we have to be engaged in the political process. That's part of being a citizen. It's not Christian activism. It is engaging in our responsibilities as a citizen. But, but this is all part of the pressure of life. We have to understand that, that as, uh, with the very first breath we breathe as an American citizen, that we have certain responsibilities that are placed upon us, and with the very first breath we breathe as believers, there's also another, another layer of responsibility placed upon us. Now, we can be irresponsible and ignore these things, but when you do that, you know, and I know that things eventually fall apart, and we have to pay attention. So, at the foundation to this is understanding grace. Because grace relates to so many different areas of application. In fact, all of the more advanced uh, spiritual skills that we'll talk about are, seem to be predicated on understanding grace. So this is just such a foundational skill. Grace orientation begins by understanding that everything that we are and have comes from God. Nothing that I have is something I deserve. Now, I may have worked hard, I may have studied hard, I may have done certain things, but ultimately it is God who blesses, God who gives the reward, God is the one who enhances things. There are a lot of people who have fabulous backgrounds, wonderful educations, high IQs, and yet they work hard their whole life and nothing seems to work, nothing seems to happen. Other people don't seem to be so talented, they're not quite so educated, they're not quite so intelligent, and it just seems like certain things happen in, and to their life. Uh, God has a plan and God works and it's our responsibility to develop every facet of potential that he has given us because uh it, it has been it's been delegated to us as believers. So everything comes from God. Now in the past I've pointed this out that from different scriptures we see that there are different levels of spiritual growth. We have spiritual infancy, we have spiritual adolescence, and we have spiritual maturity. And there are a lot of lessons, I think, that can be learned from just observing how we grow uh, socially, emotionally, mentally, Apart from a spiritual aspect, it takes, takes time. You watch somebody who's growing up between birth and the time they're 12 or 13, and we see that, that life is, it can be fairly simple and fairly naive as they're just beginning to uh, flex their muscles, beginning to grow, beginning to uh, learn and explore different areas of, uh, of life. And that's characteristic of spiritual childhood. Uh, we often make mistakes, but if we're in a healthy, uh, family, then that provides a measure of protection and a measure of guidance for us so that as we f- learn through failure, it's not, uh, it, it's not devastating. Uh, we go through spiritual childhood, and as part of spiritual childhood, there are five basic skills that we need to learn. I often think back to the fact that when I was about seven years old, uh, my parents had me start, uh, piano lessons. I think that, that in things, in terms of some of the things we learn today, uh, that should maybe have started even earlier, because children can develop so much more the earlier they're exposed to certain types of things. But I started learning piano and I hated having to do technique drills. Later on when I uh, was in band in junior high and high school and played uh, trombone and baritone and and uh, uh, some other instruments, I hated playing technique, but technique is how you developed your musculature, how you developed um, uh, muscle memory in, in your fingers and the strength in your fingers, and how you developed the basic skills to later play things that were uh, quite beautiful and quite melodious but But technique exercises just aren 't they 're just designed to exercise. And to prepare, and you have to do it on a regular basis. And every single day, I hated this. Every single day, when I got up as a, as a kid, uh, we—I got up every day about six thirty to six forty-five. We didn't have to be at school until about eight o'clock, but I had the first thing I had to do was go in, and um, and I had to practice the piano for thirty minutes every single morning and uh, that just built that 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 habit of of practice in and that's what we need to do in the Christian life we develop habits and self-discipline and one of these is the area of confession of sin confession of sin is a recovery tool for when we fail that's all it is. Confession of sin doesn't move you forward in the Christian life. Confession of sin isn't something that's a uh, get-out-of-jail-free card so I can break the law every time I want to because I'm not going to have to go to jail. Uh Some people get the idea that that's how confession works, and frankly, we've all used it that way at some point in our Christian life because I think this is typical of immaturity. An immature person, a young child that's given freedom, uh, as he's learning to accuse that freedom, often uses it in irresponsible ways. We can't prevent that. Legalism wants to come along and say you 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 can't do that. Uh, and and try to impose restrictions on that. But you never really learn to accept responsibility and to move forward when uh, you don't have opportunities to fail. Uh, Opportunities to fail are often the key to developing personal responsibility. But confession gives us the tool for recovery. It doesn't erase negative consequences. It doesn't mean that, that if I commit certain sins or certain acts that they don't have, Uh, negative consequences. Often we do. When we have a permissive or licentious view towards sin, then that develops, helps us develop sin habits and sin patterns that often plague us later on in our spiritual life. But confession is simply the tool to recover. But what we have to do once we recover is what the Bible calls uh, walking by the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit means that we have to stay uh, stay in fellowship is often the term that we use. Actually, the term in Scripture is having fellowship, which emphasizes enjoying that ongoing rapport and relationship with God. We need, we need to build our relationship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We need to walk in greater intimacy with them, and that's what these terms emphasize. Jesus said to, that we are to abide in him Uh, And then Paul says we're to walk by means of the Spirit. Well, the other term that is often associated with this is the term filling by the Spirit, which, as we've studied, means to have our soul filled up with the Word of God by the Holy Spirit. But that happens when we're abiding in Christ, when we're walking by the Spirit, when we're in that position of intimacy and rapport with God. But as soon as we sin, just like a disobedient child, That harmony, that rapport with the Father is broken, and there needs to be something to correct the situation so that we can go back to a positive growth-oriented position. That's where confession comes in. Those two are intimately related. Beyond that, as we're going to walk by the Spirit, we ask the question, well, how do we do that? What are the tools to help me walk by the Spirit? And walking is an important uh, image that we have because the word peripatet in the Greek means to take one step at a time. It, it's a motor skill, but a lot of different things are going on when we are walking. Uh, when you watch an infant start learning how to walk, uh, he has to really focus on and think about. Uh, keep maintaining balance and he wobbles a little bit and then he takes the weight off of one foot and begins to lift it up and move it forward and then transfer the weight back to that foot, taking weight off of the first foot, picking it up and then moving it forward and it takes some time to develop that. Well, when you're six, seven, eight years of age and you've mastered this, it's not very difficult. But you watch some folks who... Uh, as a result of an accident, as a result of uh, bone breakage or something like this, where they haven't been able to walk for a while and they have to relearn walking, once again it goes back to recognizing a period of time when you have to really mentally focus on the process and that's the walking brings that out but what are the things that we do that move us forward and this is this next step that i have mentioned here the faith rest drill 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4 talk about the fact that the way we realize in our life the many blessings that God has given us, because uh, 2 Peter 1, 3 talks about the fact that God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. How do we implement them in our lives? By means of his magnificent promises, And so we have to understand those promises and learn to claim those promises and learn to walk in light of the truths of God's word. That's what we call the faith rest drill. That's the tagline to remember that. It's emphasizing faith because we're believing a promise, we're believing a statement in Scripture to be true, and then we are resting or relying upon that. Now, that resting may involve action. It's not a resting that means pure passivity, but it means action. It's a common, it's a prosaic uh, uh illustration, but you can trust God all day long that that your car is going to get washed or that your Uh, yard is going to get mowed, but, uh, having prayed about it, having trusted God for it, you still have to engage in some volitional responsibility to get the car washed, to go out, turn on the faucet, get the hose, get the soap, and wash the car, or just start it and drive it down to the local car wash, but you can't, it's not gonna happen by itself. That's not how it works. Same thing with the car. Any other response, or cutting the grass, or any other responsibility, is that we have to engage our volition under the authority of God, doing something the way God says to do it. We pray that it will get done, and then we do and perform in our arena of responsibility, trusting in God to bring about the increase and to bless uh, that which we have done. So the faith rest drill Rest has to do with that idea of resting in God's provision, in God's promise, and God being the one to provide, uh, the, the, the benefit, the, the, the fruitfulness of the operation, but we still have to do what we're told to do in Scripture. And that involves a lot of different things. We are to pray without ceasing. Prayer is very much part of the Christian life. We have to do that. We have to confess sin. We have to do that. We have to read our Bible. We have to pray. These things are not going to... Uh, they, they are not... Uh, activities that convey grace, which is how some theologies have presented it. But if, if you don't read your Bible, then you're going to be a biblically illiterate Christian. And I don't care how much theology or doctrine you know, if you don't know the Bible, then there is a incredible weakness in your understanding of truth. The doctrine is built on scripture. If you built a house without any inspection of the foundation, then you're susceptible to many problems. And this happens to people who learn theology apart from learning the Bible. Knowing the Bible is crucial. How many wonderful things can we learn from the Bible? We have wonderful translations. Now, granted, there are problems. There are problems in every translation. But there are so many wonderful things that we can learn reading through the Scriptures, reading through Proverbs, reading through the Psalms, underlining passages, making notes, uh, being reminded of things. Every Christian should be reading their Bible through at least once a year. Uh, just to know that, that who the people are, who the events are, where the places are, and the more you read it, the more you're gonna learn, the more you learn, the more you're gonna read, the more you're gonna understand, the more you're gonna comprehend. And and you're going to see promises and underline promises, and then you can make notes of these promises. Later on, as you read, you're going to say, well, wait a minute, I need to make sure who that promise is written to. And you're going to do a little more Bible study, and this is going to increase this. And see, all of this is going to be informed by the fact that you're coming to church, you're coming to Bible class, you're listening online, and you are learning uh, a framework for understanding and interpreting scripture that's going to help keep you from uh, going off target on some of these things and so the faith rest drill is a way in which we take the promises and the principles of scripture we have to learn them before we can claim them and we claim them we mix our faith with this teaching of scripture now the next uh sort of building block or basic spiritual skills, the one we're talking about, which is grace orientation. Grace orientation, again, coming out of 2 Peter 3.18, where Peter closes out his epistle and says that we are to grow in the grace. Literally, that should be more understood as in something instrumental. We grow by the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, connecting those two concepts together. We grow by grace. Uh, it is the grace of God, but we grow as we learn grace because, as we'll see in a minute, grace is is fundamental to humility and to our proper authority orientation uh, toward God. And then we have doctrinal orientation, which is how we align our mind, our thinking, to doctrine. So grace orientation aligns our thinking, our values to grace, doctrinal orientation aligns Um, uh, aligns our thinking to the grace of God. So we have uh, doctrinal orientation, grace orientation, and these are connected. Then as we go past that, as we begin to grow, we develop a personal sense of our eternal destiny. I find that this happens more naturally as we get older. When you're Ten, twelve, fifteen, twenty, thirty 12, 15, 20, 30 years of age, you think 60, 70, 80 is going to be like three centuries down the road and you're never going to get there. And so you're living more for the moment than you are for, for the long-term result. But as we age, we naturally begin to think how compressed time is, how fast it goes past, and we need to live for something more than just the moment. On well, the spiritual life, we have to learn to live for eternity because our choices, our actions today impact future things, and so we know that there is an inheritance for us reserved in heaven which relates to our uh, it's an inheritance of possession that every believer has. But there's also an inheritance that will be distributed at the judgment seat of Christ, based on how much we grow in this life. There are uh, there are potential uh, legacies that we will never realize. That some people never realize because they never develop the capacity to handle them, and so God will not distribute those rewards. Others will grow and mature, and God will uh, distribute or bestow those rewards in the millennial kingdom and on into eternity. So as we move from spiritual infancy and living for the day, we begin to focus our attention more on the long-term goal of what God's producing in our life and moving us towards that eternal destiny. Then we get into the more advanced concepts of the spiritual life, uh, the living in, in terms of really developing love. Now, love, personal love for God the Father and impersonal love for all mankind and occupation with Christ, these three really interconnect, intersect, and are interdependent. But if you don't understand grace, you can't really develop love. Love is grace-dependent, and grace is humility-dependent. Without humility, no grace. Without humility, you can't really love. So these three are all connected to one another. Personal love relates for God the Father relates to the fact that we come to know who he is. You cannot really love someone you do not know. And the only way to know God is to study his word. And as Jesus says many times in passages like John 14, John 16, and others, if you love God, we keep his commandments. Well, that means you have to know his commandments uh, to know God and to love him. So this is integral. Same Impersonal love is a funny phrase that a lot of people have trouble with. It simply emphasizes that there doesn't have to be a personal intimacy with someone to show them the love of god in our life the love of christ we don't have to to personally have a relationship with them this this applies to people like the the checker at the checkout stand at the grocery store the person who's driving um uh, irrationally down the highway uh, the person uh, who is a customer service representative on the other end of the phone when we're frustrated and tired of dealing with a computer problem for eight or ten hours we don't have a personal relationship with them but we need to demonstrate love for them uh, and it, so, therefore, it's impersonal. I just don't know of another way to to express it. Unfortunately, it comes across in one nuance of the way we use impersonal is the idea that it is it, it doesn't involve a, a relationship, uh, but it does. It just uh, it's just not a a, not an, a relationship where we really know the other person uh, very well and will never know who they are, but we're going to love them. Uh, in spite of, or despite that, because of our relationship with God. Occupation with Christ is a focus upon who Jesus Christ is and being motivated by that relationship. This is in Hebrews, that should be Hebrews 12.2, not Hebrews 2.2, 2, that we're keeping our focus on Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. That should be Hebrews 12.2. The result of this is happiness. Now, I've put happiness at the end because uh, this is something that we grow. We share in the happiness of God. But uh, James says in James 1-2 that we're to count it all joy, brethren, when we encounter various trials because we know the testing of our faith produces endurance. Well, it takes a long time to understand that principle of knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance. And the result of knowing that is then the fact that we have this joy that, that we can, we, we have as a result of our understanding of what God does in the midst of testing. So joy and happiness really is a byproduct of our whole life being focused upon who God is and what He's provided for us and our, our spiritual maturation. And so that 's at the at the top here, so this is all part of of what I call stress buster spiritual skills they 're skills because we have to work at it, practice it. It comes with effort and in time it 's not something that just automatically happens because you 've been sitting with your uh, hind end in Bible class or watching five, six, seven times a week, or whatever it is. It comes from implementing the principles that we've learned, stopping and thinking, okay, this is a situation that demands uh me being gracious. I, I need to confess my sins because I'm just all wrapped up in myself right now, so I have to uh, confess my sin, and then I can focus. And then, of course, two seconds into it, uh, if you're like me, and most of you probably are, uh, I have to go through uh, confession about 20 times for every 10 seconds whenever I'm on line with some sort of customer service computer problem technician uh, just to get something done, especially if they haven't had English as their second, third, or fourth language. And we've all had that experience. But we have to learn to treat people with respect because they're in the image of God. And this is part of learning grace orientation. So what are the components of grace orientation? As we look at the foundational uh, elements here, uh, we're focusing on grace orientation. So the first element that's part of this is humility. Humility is a recognition that we aren't really all that we think we are. Uh, We don't deserve all that we think we deserve. We're not the hot stuff that we think we are and that everybody ought to recognize. Uh, We really – we're really not bringing that much to the table. Even if you're more talented and intelligent than others – we're really not. It's an, and, and we often have to learn humility the hard way. We come up through school where we are under teachers who, well, at least at some places do provide discipline. We have parents that discipline. You go later on into the military or into advanced academics in college or you go out into the hard knocks of the real world where you get a job and after you fail a few times because you think you know it all, and you haven't learned from uh, from your employer, from your boss, uh, then you lose your job or you're reprimanded severely because of failure. Uh, this is enforced uh, humility. Uh, there's also genuine humility. There are there are times when we just learn this. There are a few things we learn the the easy way, so to speak. But we learn that that we know we sort of recognize we don't have it all together. And we need to listen to somebody who does. And so enforced humility can develop into genuine humility. Most of us don't have a whole lot of genuine humility to begin with, but that develops. And it's related to uh, authority orientation. We recognize that God has established authorities over us. And whether we agree with those authorities or not, whether we uh, think those authorities are really better than us or not, we have to learn to submit to those authorities. The best example of this given in Scripture is in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, which talks about how Jesus, who's completely equal to God in terms of all of his abilities and capacities, submitted himself by being obedient to the point of going to the cross that's what humility is. It is obeying the person in authority, even when it costs us a lot. Because we recognize that that sphere of authority, and because we have humility, we can relax in life. And even in the most tense situations, we can have a calm mental attitude. We don't just seize up. Now, that's hard for some people. But it takes practice to claim promises. But once again, you have to go back to that faith, rest, drill concept, and you have to memorize promises and principles that you can claim to keep your mind focused on things. A lot of different illustrations we can use here, illustrations especially that come to mind or related to any kind of athletics and learning to focus and learning to uh get those distractions out of the way and li- and and to break things down into their individual components and then focus on getting each section of that uh that drill or that exercise down before you put it all together it takes uh, a lot of time it's not doesn't just happen naturally it seems to me in christian life people often think that that's what happens, that I'm just going to go to church and I'm just going to read my Bible and I'm going to rely on the Holy Spirit and it's just going to happen. And I don't have to exercise self-discipline under the guidance of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. I don't have to say no when I really, really want to say yes. I don't have to, uh, the, 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 because I'm walking by the Spirit, doesn't mean the temptations are any less real or any less attractive but I have to say no, and he's going to give me the strength and the ability to say no, but I have to say no, and that's part of it. Well, relaxed mental attitude is something that grows gradually out of humility. And then this leads to another area, uh, the mastery of the details of life, because all of a sudden we realize that all of these details of life that we get so consumed with – all of the different aspects, success in our jobs and in our careers, making money, having certain things, uh, being able to travel and go certain places, having certain benchmarks of recognition that come through academics or the military or work, that, that, that all of these things are just details of life. That when it's all said and done and we've checked off all of our advances and we have uh, accumulated all of our possessions when we die we're often not in very attractive circumstances we it doesn't matter how much we've had it doesn't matter how uh, how much we achieved uh, it's a very sad reality to go to a nursing home and see where we all end up and then we die and then we go face to face with the Lord. And as believers, the only thing we have with us is the capacities we've developed as believers. That's what we take with us. You know, our physical attractiveness, our uh, physical uh, athletic achievements, our, our academic achievements, our business achievements are not going to count when we get to heaven. What's going to count is how much we took in the Word of God and applied it on a day-to-day basis. And so this grows out of grace orientation. Grace orientation means that we recognize that all that we have, all that we are, comes from God, and so we need to be thankful for that. That produces humility. That's the starting point. It's just the basic principle that we find in Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that fear of the Lord is another way of talking about uh, grace orientation. Now, that takes us back, puts us into that whole framework of the spiritual skills. Those spiritual skills, as we master them, strengthen our soul just another illustration or way of breaking down the components and the mechanics or the processes by which we strengthen our mental attitude strengthen our soul focus our thinking and focus our lives so that we recognize what the real issues in life are where we're majoring on the real issues we're, we're focusing on that which has real eternal value and not just on the, the incidentals and the day-to-day uh, things that come up. So the fourth point here is capacity for genuine gratitude develops from the understanding uh, of salvation and what God has done for us. Uh, Sometimes I've heard people talk about, and and to some degree there's a validity to this criticism, that in some churches and some denominations are generally known for uh, preaching the gospel a thousand and one ways. And that's done often in a superficial way, and every Sunday morning seems to be the same evangelistic service uh, packaged uh, in a number of different stories. But when we study salvation... Again and again and again, we look at all the different facets, redemption, reconciliation, propitiation, imputation, justification, regeneration. The more we study, the more we realize how, how totally undeserving any of us are of salvation, how totally undeserving I am of salvation. And then, and we realize more and more of all the complexities of God's salvation for us. Now, salvation's very simple. Christ died on the cross for your sins. But when you break that down, it can become very complex, and we realize God did so very, very much for us. That is uh, humbling to realize that God cared so much about us that he did this, and we were spiritually dead. We were obnoxious to him. Uh, there was nothing in us desirable For him, other than we were his creatures, and he loved us in such a way that he sent his son to die on the cross uh, for our sins. This leads us to express our gratitude, Psalm 118.21. The psalmist says, I shall give thanks to thee, for thou hast answered me. And thou hast become my salvation. Uh, read through the psalms there 's wonderful psalms of thanksgiving expressing gratitude to God for all the ways in which he worked in the lives of of David, worked in the lives of the other psalmists, worked in the life of Israel. Keep a list, make a notebook, think about all the and nothing should be so small. Uh, think about all the things in which you are grateful. And then go through some of the prayers in the Scripture. What are the great saints, the great patriarchs of the Old Testament thankful for? What's Paul thankful for? What's Peter thankful for? What's Jude, uh, James? What are these other writers of Scripture thankful for? How do they express that? And they're not just in these opening statements. There are many other places. Fifth point is as we learn about our salvation more and more, uh, gratitude expands towards God in direct proportion to the doctrine assimilated in our soul. The more we understand what God has done to us, the right response is it should humble us. And as it does, our gratitude toward him increases until we're just so thankful For every single day that God gives us breath to serve him, that that's why we're here is to serve him. We're not here to have a family per se. We're not here to to be God's answer to whatever area of vocation he's given us. We're not God's answer to the teaching profession or the preaching profession or the computer profession or the engineering profession. We're here to serve God, and those are gifts and talents and abilities God's given us. We didn't do anything to earn or deserve those, and that's how we can serve God. And so this develops as we understand doctrine. So gratitude begins with making doctrine the highest priority in our life. And by doctrine we mean not only the teaching of Scripture in terms of the the basic theological principles related to God and man and life, but, but it also relates to how to live in light of all of this. Uh, It's the policies and procedures that we are to implement every single day uh, in our life. Psalm 138.2 says, I will bow down toward thy holy temple. So this is in the Old Testament when the temple was still uh, active. Bow down toward thy holy temple and give thanks to thy name for, this is a word that means on account of or because of, thy loving kindness and thy truth. So thanks is caused by an understanding of God's chesed love, his faithful, loyal love, and his truth. So understanding the truth of God's word should generate thankfulness. We should be so thankful that we have this revelation, this information given to us in Scripture. And then uh, the psalmist goes on to say for, again, explanation, or because thou hast magnified thy word according to all thy name. So look at the emphasis on the word of God in terms of developing thankfulness. We can draw a progression here. We give thanks, that's motivated by thy loving kindness and thy truth. Why? Because thy word, which which informs us of truth, is magnified according to all of God's name or all of God's character. So under point number seven, gratitude, therefore, is directed toward God and begins with an understanding of salvation and then develops through our understanding of God's character. So there's a progression here. You never get enough. I'm amazed at how many times I've studied Scripture, how many times I go back. I think we all reach plateaus at times. Pastors certainly do. Uh, we reach plateaus in every area of life where we're, where we're kind of uh, on, on a holding pattern. We've, we're still assimilating what we've learned and getting ready for the next stage. The trouble is too many people want to uh, camp out at the plateaus and stay there rather than pressing on to the next, uh, the next achievement, the next advance, overcoming the next obstacle. And so we can never learn enough about God's Word. I certainly haven't. There's so much I want to learn, so many things I want to study, so much that I haven't even probed yet that I could have ten more centuries and not even uh, uh, scratch the surface of, of a thorough understanding of the Word of God. So we have to begin. The more we learn, the more grateful we should be. Uh, Gratitude under point number eight, gratitude then is directed toward God and becomes a barometer, a a, a metric for uh, our capacity for fellowship with God. If you think that you're capacity for gratitude, your expressions of gratitude just really isn't that much, then then that's a metric for you, that you need to get your act in order. Uh, you need to focus more upon the Lord, and you need to recognize that arrogance is having a greater role in your life than you're probably willing to admit. So that gratitude's a great metric for me- for evaluating our own fellowship and our own spiritual growth. And it becomes a basis then for developing real happiness and joy, uh, joy in life. Well, let's look at just some scripture here as we get ready to wrap up. Psalm 717. Uh, the the psalmist says, I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness. So that means that I have to have some kind of understanding of God's righteousness and its expression objectively in God's character and subjectively in creation in order to give thanks for it. Uh, I will sing praise. See, singing praise is an expansion in the parallelism here in the text. It's an expansion of giving thanks. We give praise to God. That's what we do in the psalms that we sing. It's not just saying praise you, praise you, praise you, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. That is just a redundancy, almost mindlessness. When we read these psalms, there's specificity in what we're thankful for and what we're praising uh, God for. Psalm 97.12 says, Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones, and give thanks to his holy name. Give thanks to his character, the way he is working things out uh, in history. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, In everything give thanks. And Ephesians 5.20 says to give thanks for all things. That pretty much includes every way in which we can express uh, the details of life around us. We need to give thanks for it and in it, whatever those circumstances are. Scripture in Colossians 2.7 says that uh, uh, we're to be overflowing with gratitude. The last uh, part of that, Colossians 1.12, Paul says, uh, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. So we are to be thankful for the fact that we're qualified in this particular area. So for inner happiness, tranquility, stability, and contentment, the Bible doctrine, the teaching of the scripture must be more important than we are. We've got to get out of ourselves. We've got to quit being so self-absorbed and narcissistic. And the only way we can do this is to work our way through the mastering of, of these spiritual, uh, spiritual skills. Well, I'm going to stop here uh, with this on point number 10, and we will come back the next time and look at a few more things. Well, actually, I'm almost done. I couldn't remember how many slides I had. Let's look at point 11. The first enemy of gratitude is arrogance, and the arrogant skills, keep this in mind, are being self-centered, self-absorbed, self-indulgent, and all that leads to where we constantly justify and defend ourselves. Well, I'm doing it right. Right. You know, if you just knew my circumstances, if you just understood where I'm coming from, if you just understood the kind of problems that I have in life, uh, we justify. And then this just leads to self-deception where we have lost all objectivity towards life and we can't really understand truth for what it is. And these skills reinforce and support one another uh, until we eventually get into this whole thing where we're just worshiping ourselves. We're the ultimate determiner of truth. That's the complete opposite of someone who is grace-oriented and understands gratitude. And sadly, this is characteristic of too many of us and too many people in our culture. So this is the importance of the doctrine of gratitude. Next time we'll come back and look at the importance of prayer and things to pray for and how we should pray as we look at not only this opening prayer, of Paul's in First Thessalonians 1, but comparing that with other prayers of his in other epistles. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to focus upon your word to be able to learn that, that we're not the, the wonderful people that we think we are. We are wonderful because we're in your image, we're in your likeness, and what becomes wonderful in us is what is produced in us through your grace, through God the Holy Spirit, and that we have a great responsibility as believers to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, to get outside of ourselves and recognize that we've been saved for a purpose, and that purpose is to serve you in every area of life. And that means we have to be trained and qualified uh, to be able to serve you. So we have to spend time in your word and let your word become so internalized in our souls that it shapes everything in life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.